Well, he is risen. So great to be here this morning. Great to have a chance to gather uh, like this as a church. This is Resurrection Sunday. And the truth is that we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, every day as Christians. Uh, But Sunday is a special day and Easter Sunday is a very special day because uh, this week is a time that we set aside to remember uh, what Jesus has done for us. Uh, done for us in dying for our sins and being raised to new life. The reason churches gather on Sundays is because it was a Sunday, the first day of the week, when Jesus was raised from the dead. And out of that, we have just continued to celebrate for 2,000 years now. And uh, really, this Sunday, this uh, Jesus' resurrection is the reason that this weekend is the high point of the Christian calendar each year. If you got a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to open it to John chapter 20. Uh, we have been uh, making our way through the Gospel of John as a church for close to two years now. We've spent lots of time exploring this Gospel together. Today we come to near the close of it, and today we come to the account of Jesus' resurrection. And I'm going to read for you John chapter 20, verses 1 to 23. This is God's Word, and this is what it says. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their, to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And then verse 19, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Uh, British preacher Ian uh, Pitt Watson used to say that there have been only two great revolutions in the history of humankind. Just two that have forever changed human life on this planet. He said that the first revolution began when somebody started to farm. Up until that time, human beings had been hunter-gatherers. They lived from day to day. They moved from place to place. There was no such thing as home. Then someone noticed that if they dropped a seed in the ground and walked away, something happened. Normally, burying something in the ground is how we get rid of something. To deliberately throw away something edible looked foolish, but someone did and life sprang forth. Human beings would no longer have to live from day to day. They no longer had to move from place to place. There would be towns and crafts and arts and architecture and tools and civilization. There would be home. All civilization, Ian said, is built on this one observation. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, we recognize those words as the words of Jesus. He was speaking about his death and resurrection. His death and resurrection put in motion the greatest revolution in human history. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground or into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The only thing that's ever happened in world history where we could truly say this changes everything is the resurrection of Jesus. This is the defining feature of the Christian faith. Take away the historical resurrection of Jesus and there is no Christian faith. If the resurrection now is the beginning, or if it marked the beginning of a revolution, what kind of revolution was it? What was the basis of this revolution? What was behind it? What fueled it? What has sustained it? Well, I want to try to answer those questions by highlighting four truths that we discover here in John chapter 20. And the first thing to know is that this is a revolution grounded in history. Now, lots of revolutions throughout history have been grounded in an idea. They are rooted in philosophy. The goal of such revolutions is to bring about change, political change or economic change or social change. And lots of people think that the Christian faith is grounded in an idea or that it's rooted in a philosophy. The love of neighbor, doing good to others. And while those ideas are radical, they are not the grounds of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is grounded in a historical reality that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And because of that, everything has changed. So Luke begins his gospel like this. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, 
having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke writes his gospel like an investigative reporter. He sets out to ascertain the facts about Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And this idea that the Christian faith is rooted in this historical event is important for us to understand. This is one of the distinguishing features of the Christian faith. And I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity, for instance, to read the Koran, but what you find in there is almost no reference to history. There's no mention of historical people outside of the prophet, no mention of historical places or specific uh, time periods. In fact, the Koran could have been written in any one of a number of different centuries. And this is true with regard to most religious writings. But the Christian faith is anchored in history. It's rooted in an event. It's rooted in the events that took place in what we now call the first century. And as we read this passage, there are two things of historical note that I want to draw your attention to. The first one is the empty tomb. So it tells us in verse 1 that Mary came to the tomb in the early hours of the morning, and she discovers that the large stone that would have been set in place to seal off the tomb had been rolled away and that the tomb was empty. Both of those things are startling. Someone had to move that stone, and either Jesus walked out of that tomb or someone carried his dead body out. Now, there have been suggestions as to what might have happened to the body of Jesus. Who might have taken the body of Jesus? The first one is that maybe the disciples took it and then later claimed that he had been raised. A couple of major problems with that theory. The first one is that the tomb was under Roman guard. It's unlikely a group of peasants would have been able to overcome them. But maybe the guards fell asleep. But what we need to remember is that the disciples had nothing to gain by faking the resurrection of Jesus. History tells us that that the disciples received nothing but persecution, arrest, and martyrdom for preaching the resurrection of Jesus. They had nothing to gain from falsifying reports about it. On top of that, while some people might be willing to die for a lie if they don't know it's a lie, it's unlikely a group like the disciples would be willing to lay down their lives for something they knew to be false. So others have suggested, well, maybe the officials took the body of Jesus. And the problem with that is that it didn't take long for the news of Jesus' resurrection to spread all over Israel. And this is something that neither the Jewish officials nor the Roman officials were happy about. But here's the thing. If either the Jewish religious leaders or the Roman political leaders wanted to put an end to all this nonsense that Jesus had been raised from the dead, all they had to do would be to produce the body of Jesus. Look, here's your Savior. He's dead. They couldn't do that because the tomb was empty. So the first piece of historical evidence we have to reckon with is the empty tomb of Jesus. The second piece of historical evidence is the eyewitnesses. Now, here we're told that Mary was the first one to come to the tomb and that she came in the early hours of the morning. When you read through the other Gospels, you find that it was actually a group of women who came to the tomb on that morning. And it is interesting to note that the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection 
were women. In the first century, the testimony of women was not even admissible in a court of law. Celsus, who was a Greek philosopher that lived, who lived in the second century A.D., was highly antagonistic towards Christianity. He wrote a number of works listing his various arguments against it, and one of the arguments that he believed to be most telling went like this. Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women, and we all know that women are hysterical. So he said it, not me, okay? (laughs) But in reality, the opposite is actually true. The fact that the Gospels identify women as the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection actually lends credibility to the authenticity of these accounts. If you were making this up and you wanted to add credibility to it, you would not choose women to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. But Mary was not the only eyewitness. Uh, Peter and John, they come to the tomb to investigate. They hear what Mary has said, and they immediately start running to the tomb. Verse 4, it says, Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. It's kind of interesting, right, that John feels the need to tell us that he and Peter were running together, but that he outran Peter and got to the tomb first. What are we supposed to make of that? Is this a a little bit of arrogance on John's part? You should know that Jesus was raised from the dead, and you should know that I'm a really fast runner. Are those like the two pillars of the Christian faith? Jesus is raised from the dead, and John can run really fast. Well, actually, I don't think this is uh, uh, displaying any arrogance on John's part here. Actually, what the story says is he gets to the tomb first, but then he waits. He doesn't go inside. He actually defers to Peter. Peter would have been the older of the apostles or disciples, and he defers to him to go in first. I think what we're supposed to understand from Peter telling the story the way that he does is that he was an eyewitness. He was there, and he's providing all the details of what happened. And John actually does this at a number of points throughout the Gospel of John. So last week, we looked at how how John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. We kind of walked through and saw how it it is John that wrote this Gospel. He's the one identified as the disciple Jesus loved. And he refers to himself that way a few times in this Gospel. And each time that he does, you can see he's providing details that only an eyewitness could give. So if you go back to John chapter 13. We read this. It's at the Last Supper. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. See, John was there, right? He could provide specific details of what was actually happening around the table because he's an eyewitness. In John 18, we read the account of what happened after the arrest of Jesus. And there it says, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. 
The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. See, John, again, gives the kind of details that only an eyewitness could give. And John's own summation of his gospel is this. He says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. So John was an eyewitness, so we have the kind of details befitting an eyewitness account of these events. The Apostle Peter would later say, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The Apostle Paul would later go on to say, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So we have these eyewitness accounts. Second thing, We ought to know about this revolution. It's grounded in history, but also we ought to know that it's a revolution that altered history. Now, if you've read through the Bible before, then you will know that the resurrection of Jesus was not actually the first time that someone was raised from the dead. The Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha, each raised someone from the dead in the course of their ministry. And even in the ministry of Jesus, there are at least two occasions where he raises someone from the dead. He raised an official's daughter, and here in the Gospel of John, we read about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So what is it that makes the resurrection of Jesus so different, so significant? And to answer that, we need to stop and think about two details that are mentioned here. The first one is the grave clothes that are described here. Listen again to verses 5 to 7. It says, And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So what is the significance of the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth being folded up? Well, maybe you've heard about the shroud, the, the so-called shroud of Turin, which people claim to be this very face cloth because it has the imprint of a face of a man. And I would just say I don't think we should put any stock in that whatsoever. The best testing of that has been shown that it's from the 14th century, not the 1st century. But even if you could date it and say, oh, it's from the 1st century... The imprint of a man's face on a cloth wouldn't prove anything. So if that's not the significance of these burial clothes and this cloth, what is? Well, I think we are supposed to see a contrast between the resurrection of Jesus and the raising of Lazarus. Back in John chapter 11, we read this. When he had said these things, that's when Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to to them, unbind him and let him go. It's almost like the, the death is still clinging to him. 
The raising of Lazarus was temporary. He was raised from the dead, but he would die again. The resurrection of Jesus was permanent. Death no longer had a hold on him. And let me sort of try to illustrate the importance or the significance of this, of this picture. Uh, I am not great at lots of domestic duties. Uh, most domestic duties, I'm not, I'm not that great at. I'm, I'm pretty good at unloading and, and reloading the dishwasher. I'm not terrible at vacuuming. But you don't want to let me anywhere, anywhere near the, st- the stovetop or the oven or lots of other things, right? Part of it, I've just learned if you do them badly, you don't get asked to, to do them again. But, but there is this one skill that I kind of feel like I excel at, and that is folding up blankets. Now, in the, in the fall months and in the winter months, uh, when it's a little bit colder, uh, often if Ilona or one of the girls sits on the, on the couch or one of the chairs in our house, they will bring with them a blanket and they will kind of cover themselves up with it. And what inevitably happen, happens is that they will, you know, walk away, sometimes even just for a couple of minutes. And I feel like it's my duty when I see a blanket that is, you know, in a bunch on the, I got to fold that thing up and drape it over the arm of the couch and sometimes Ilona will have to tell me, you know, I'm, I'm going to be back. You don't need to fold the blanket. I, I actually think that's the, that's the picture here. Jesus is done with these grave clothes. He doesn't need this face cloth anymore. You only fold up the blanket when the person is done with it. Jesus wasn't raised as a temporary measure to die again. And we actually see something similar here in his interaction with Mary. This is the point that he's making. Look again at verses 16 and 17. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. See, Mary thinks she needs to cling to Jesus. She needs to hang on to him. She doesn't want to lose him again. And Jesus is helping her understand that his resurrection is no temporary resurrection. He will soon be ascending to his Father in heaven. That's why we often say that the significance of Easter Sunday is not just that Jesus was raised but that Jesus is risen. Because Jesus has been raised, because he is risen, we can be assured of our own resurrection. See, this is how this revolution altered history. Nothing like this had ever happened before. A third thing we can say about this revolution is that it is a revolution that is fueled by joy. So the disciples were gathered in a room with the door locked when Jesus suddenly appears in their midst and he says, peace be with you. And as he's standing there, he shows him his hands and his side, right? The nail marks and where the spear had pierced him. And then verse 20 says, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, I think that has to be one of the most understated ways of saying what happened. It's actually a curious translation here in the ESV. The NIV translates it, they were filled with joy. 
Other translations say they were overjoyed or they rejoiced when they saw him. Saying they were glad to see him makes it sound like they ran into Jesus at a cocktail party and said, nice to see you again, Jesus. That's not the scene at all. Jesus was dead. They all knew it. They were huddled in a room. They're basically curled up in the fetal position, not sure what to do next. I'm pretty sure this wasn't a, hey, nice to see you again, kind of moment. They're overjoyed. And actually, the whole setting of John chapter 20 is is one of great sadness turning into great joy. Jesus has been crucified. Everyone who was close to him is grieving over this. So Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb to anoint Jesus' dead body. She is full of grief. But when she gets there and then discovers that the body of Jesus is gone, she's overcome with sadness. Verse 11 says this, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb. And then in verse 13, she sees these angels. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And then in verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She's filled with sorrow. But then Jesus appears to her and she is filled with joy. I mean, she's so glad to see him. She grabs hold of him. She will not let go. Jesus has to say, let go. And we see that same kind of sorrow in the account in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 24, two of Jesus' followers were walking along the road when Jesus appeared to them. They don't recognize him at first. So Jesus begins to talk to them, and it says there, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. So this was a profound, deep sadness. And these men went on to explain why they were sad. There was this prophet who was mighty in word and deed, who did amazing things, and he was put to death, though he was innocent. And those two men, they get everything right about the life and ministry and death of Jesus. But they miss the resurrection. And because they miss the resurrection, they're stuck in their sadness. See, the life and ministry and death of Jesus without the resurrection of Jesus would just be a great tragedy. I mean, maybe he taught some good things. Maybe he did some great things. But at the end of the day, all we could do would be to mourn the loss of a great man. These men understood that the death of Jesus meant the death of his movement. And although he predicted it consistently, the resurrection was a surprise to every one of Jesus' followers. And that surprise always resulted in joy. And that joy fueled this revolution. The scene in John 20 where Jesus appears to his disciples and says, Peace be with you, and they're filled with joy, was actually predicted by Jesus earlier in the Gospel of John. If you go back to chapter 16, while they're still enjoying that last supper together, we find this exchange between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. 
The, the disciples were, were confused, right? They're a little bit clueless. They think this is sort of like riddle time with Bilbo and Gollum. A box without hinges, key, or lid, yet golden treasure inside is hit. Like, how do you figure this out? That's what they're doing. And Jesus hears them. They're kind of puzzling over this. So he addresses them again. It says, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is, that what you, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will le- weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, right? For a joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. John twenty twenty. They were glad, they rejoiced when they saw the Lord is the fulfillment of that promise. And the joy that Jesus gave them was not a temporary joy. He says it's a joy that no one can take from them. What the disciples were about to discover is that while others could take their lives, they could not take their joy. So how is that possible? That they had that kind of joy. Jesus is going to leave them again. He's going to ascend to heaven. What will make it different this time? And I think there's two things that, that make this a reality, not just for these first disciples, but actually for all followers of Jesus. The first one is the gift of the Holy Spirit. In symbolic fashion, Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit that enables us to have peace and joy, regardless of the circumstances of our lives. Now, the resurrection is a fact to be believed, but it's not just a fact to be believed. The Christian faith is not like Eastern religions that have no rational content. Our faith rests on something historical, as I've said. This either happened or it didn't. We either believe it or we don't. But our faith doesn't end with the events of history. The truth we celebrate today is not just that Christ rose, but that Christ is risen. And because he is risen and ascended to his Father, he has sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. And that is a joy that can never be taken from us. The second thing that makes this joy a reality in our daily lives is the knowledge that our sins have been forgiven. Jesus commissions his disciples with the message of forgiveness for sins. Now, we'll we'll look at that commissioning in, in more detail in a couple of minutes, but for now, let me just say that this is a thought that ought to fill our hearts with joy every day. If you have placed your faith in Christ, your sins have been forgiven. It's a promise from Jesus. Now, the Apostle Paul looks at the flip side of that when he when he asks, what would be true if Christ had not been raised from the dead. And here's what he says, for if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Those, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
So Paul is not sentimental. He's not sort of like, well, hey, you know what? Even if all this isn't true, at least you've lived a good life and a full life. He says, if all we have is the kind of faith that gives us hope in this life, Christianity is an utter waste of time. But since our faith rests on the fact of Christ's resurrection, it means that our sins have been forgiven. And while we might have sorrow now over a particular sin in our life, we might have grief over that kind of stuff, we do not go around with a downcast spirit because we know that Christ has accomplished and secured our forgiveness. Final thing we ought to know about this revolution is that it is a revolution that overflows in mission. And I think too many Easter messages end with what we saw in the first point, that Jesus' resurrection is the thing that defines our faith. It's, it's something to be cherished as providing sort of personal comfort to me when I'm faced with the grimness of my sin or maybe the reality of my own death and I've got this great comfort. That's true. But there's actually more to the story. Just think about the picture that we see in this passage. Ten of the disciples, right? Because Thomas is not there. Judas has betrayed Jesus. Ten of the disciples are huddled in a room together. They've got the door locked or barricaded in case the rulers who crucified Jesus come searching for them. It's actually a, a, a pretty pathetic scene. There are just ten of them in the room. I mean, at this point, they don't even have enough members to form a soccer team. Not that anyone would ever be scared of a soccer team. But but there's not even 11 of them. And they're hiding out. They're trying to figure out what are we supposed to do next. And isn't this too often the picture of the church? I mean, we've gathered in a sort of holy huddle. We're afraid to venture out into the world. And too often we've forgotten that the good news of Jesus and his resurrection is meant to be shared. The Christian faith is not supposed to be this sort of private, personally comforting thing. We don't gather in secret. I love the fact that many churches have kind of rediscovered the the great joy of outdoor public baptisms. I love when we do ours across the street and lots of people pass by. This passage reminds us we don't have to hide out. In fact, we've been sent out. So Jesus appears among his disciples. He says, peace be with you. He shows them his hands and his side. And he again says, peace be with you. But then he says something really interesting in verse 21. Look again at verse 21. He says, I want you to know the world is a pretty bad place. Look what they did to me. I think you guys should just stay here and only venture out when you have to. It's not what he says. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Right? The Father sent Jesus into a hostile world. And we, as Jesus' followers, are sent into a hostile world. We're sent with the message of forgiveness for sins. I've said this to you before, but all four Gospels end with Jesus commissioning his disciples. In the Gospel of Mark, we read, and he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. 
In Luke, it says, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Wait for the spirit to come. Once the spirit comes, you ought to go into all the world and proclaim this good news everywhere. In Matthew, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus ends. All the Gospels end with a commissioning. I think that's actually one of the most astounding aspects of the resurrection. When we have the picture of John 20 in our minds, 10 disciples hiding in a locked room, it's amazing that the church came into existence at all, isn't it? I mean, how could this frightened group possibly become a revolution? I I don't know if you've seen the movie The Jesus Revolution or not. I think it's actually one of the better Christian movies. And the movie tells the story of what happened in the ministry of Calvary Chapel in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Chuck Smith was the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California. It was a small and dwindling congregation. He's watching the news and he's complaining about all the ways the radicals are ruining the world. And he makes the offhanded remark that he'd like to talk to one of these hippies. And by God's providence, he does. And soon his church is filled with hippies. They're soon baptizing dozens, then hundreds, then thousands in the Pacific Ocean. And the movie gets its name from the fact that Time Magazine ran a cover story in 1971 entitled The Jesus Revolution. And the article was really just trying to make sense to what was happening across America as thousands of disillusioned young people placed their faith in Jesus. At the start of that revolution, you would have been hard-pressed to imagine it would amount to anything at all. And I think that's exactly the same situation with the disciples here in John 20. How could this grow into a revolution that transformed the world? Well, it's because they had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. If you want to look at a specific example of how an encounter with the risen Jesus changed someone, look at Peter. Peter was one of the ten who was in the room when Jesus appeared to the disciples. But think about where he had been on Friday when Jesus was crucified. We know the story, right? He denied Jesus three times. And that's not to pick on him. It's just to say that before the resurrection, Peter was scared to death of being connected with Jesus in any way. But Peter is a completely different person after the resurrection. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and the other apostles are arrested twice for preaching the gospel. And listen to how he handles it. He says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 
And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. What else could have caused such a transformation other than an encounter with the risen Jesus? And I would just say, as we think about this revolution, the revolution that began when Jesus was raised from the dead, I pray we would see the fruits of that revolution in our day. I pray we would see that kind of revolution in our church. And what does it take for that to happen? It doesn't take much. And it took 10 individuals who had an encounter with Jesus. I love what it says in Acts chapter 4 when it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You know, that's what's required. It is that as you and I have an encounter with the risen Jesus, we take that message of forgiveness of sins, we, we come with our joy, we take that to the world, and we let them know about the hope that's found only in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the message of the gospel. We thank you for the fact that Jesus is alive and at your right hand and interceding for us. And Father, that this work did not stop on the day you raised him, but you have birthed your church. You have invited us into a relationship with you, and you have also invited us, such an amazing privilege, to be able to invite others to know you as well. So God, I pray that as we seek to do that, as we seek to know Jesus and make him known, that you would bless those efforts. And we pray this in his name. Amen.